You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. I think Joseph's story is a pretty, was one of the greatest stories in the Bible. I know you, you hear me say that for whatever, I, whatever I'm preaching on, right? But um, I think it's really cool if, if you really think about it. Um, if you think about Jacob, his favorite son was Joseph. He had given him that really cool coat of many colors. But his dream of his, he had that dream of his family bowing down before him, and it created a lot of resentment, right? I think we can all kind of understand that. So his jealous brothers, they sold him as a slave to Egypt, and then they lied to their grieving father. So, um, but in Egypt, God blessed Joseph despite having to deal with repeated setbacks. For instance, he became the steward over Potiphar's household, but only to be falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife. And then while he was imprisoned, he accurately interprets a couple of dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, only to be later forgotten and pretty much left there in prison to rot. Now, because of his ability to, ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams about the coming famine, Joseph, he, he was promoted into a high, very high lofty position, second only to Pharaoh himself. And so in the midst of this great widespread famine, everyone around the, uh, the nation, that's the, the area of Egypt where they were impacted by his famine, they're coming to Egypt, including Joseph's brothers. And so we recall Joseph dealing with his brothers without being recognized. And now we will come to what we will call the climax of the story, right? Where Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. And while the story, I think, is just overall really interesting, if you really think about the story, and we'll go into it deeper, is that it's clear that God's got some pretty profound and awesome lessons for us to learn today. So you ready for that? Yeah? Okay. So our first point is this. We're at the mercy of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're at the mercy of God. Now, here's the thing. I think in life, as we grow smarter, as we grow more mature, as we learn from past experiences, we become careful to not let ourselves in a situation where we become vulnerable to others. In other words, Fool me once, shame on you, right? Fool me twice, shame on me. You've heard that before. So like maybe in the past, we'd use up all our options, all our lifelines, so to speak, and so we could, so we find ourselves in this bind in life. But through those experiences, we become a little bit more wary, maybe a little bit wiser perhaps, and we make sure that there's a safety net for us. And maybe we even make sure that we're never ever again at someone else's mercy. Does that make sense? And that may be wise because, you know, we want to make sure we cover up all our bases, but the idea of not wanting to be in debt to anyone, but what happens is, is that that thinking even actually trickles and extends to our dealing with God, that thinking. So we make sure that we don't sin too much, and so we live a very risk-free life, never going too far out on that faith limb. 
And if we fail at something, we try to make sure we've done something else good because we never want to be without some sort of bargaining power. So maybe for some of us, we'll use all our years of service and commitment and dedication that we spend here at church, and we use it in a way that if anyone, if anyone should ever call us out on some sin, or if should God ever call us out on some sin of ours, then we can throw at them, well, God or people, look at how faithfully I've been serving you all these years. Look at how faithfully I've been serving the church. When people have been rejecting these positions of service, I've been recommitting to these positions to help. When people have been refusing to be part of these programs, I've been reengaging into these programs and helping other people get behind it too. Look at what I've done. And so we always want to make sure that we have some sort of bargaining power, some bargaining chips. And we do this because in the back of our minds, we don't ever truly want to be at God's mercy. We want, we want to be able to say something for ourselves. We want to be able to justify for ourselves and give an excuse and say, well, look at all I've done. But the reality is that we could have the intellect of Einstein. We could be pretty awesome. We could have the passion of Steve Jobs, the, clar- the charity of Bill Gates, the market acumen of Warren Buffett, and the faith and integrity of Billy Graham. But here's the thing. We could have all that and be amazing and just be such a steward, such a humanitarian, such a servant. But even in all that, we will fall short Because at the end of the day, there is nothing we can offer God that he doesn't already have or need from us. We will always be, get this, on your best day, we will always be at the mercy of God. At the mercy of God. That's the picture we see here of Joseph's brothers. For 22 years, they had this dirty little secret. This dirty little secret about what happened to their little brother, Joe. They never ever told their grieving father. They probably never spoke about it amongst each other. Their wives and their children, they didn't know about it. Even Benjamin, the youngest brother, didn't even know about it. They thought that this skeleton was safely locked inside their closet forever, and there was no one in the entire universe who could ever bring it up again, and that was exactly true. There was absolutely no one except for Joseph. And so they stood before the governor of Egypt, apparently caught red-handed in the theft. They're fearing for what might happen to them. And if you could just imagine with me for a moment, they hear from Joseph the last words that they would ever, ever want to hear. Now here's here's the thing, it's true. There are a lot of things that they probably would not want to hear from Joseph. They probably would not want to hear, you are condemned to life in prison forever. But what they heard actually was far worse than that. It's true, they probably wouldn't want to hear, you're going to be my slaves now for doing what you've done. But what they heard was worse than that. It's true, they probably didn't want to even hear, Benjamin is now my slave. The rest of you go home and tell your father what you've done. But what they actually heard was worse than that. You see, the governor, the prime minister, the number two in all of Egypt, he didn't say any of those things as bad as those words were. Instead, the governor said the one thing all the brothers hoped they would never, ever hear for the rest of their days, and that was, I am Joseph. Can you imagine what they felt at that moment? We need to put ourselves in their shoes to understand why they're so speechless, why they're so terrified. See, Joseph, he knows what no one else knows. 
Joseph knew the secret that these brothers would be willing to take with them to the grave. And now the truth has come out. They've been exposed. And what makes it worse wasn't that Joseph just knew about it, but what made it exponentially worse for the brothers was that it was the victim himself standing before them. The victim standing before the perpetrators. And now this victim holds all the power. He holds all the power. He's the governor. He's the second in command over all of Egypt. The brothers were just foreign nomads. They were just traveling around. They had no diplomatic immunity. They had no rights of citizenship. No, Joseph had the power to imprison them, to torture them, to enslave them, and even execute them. Joseph had the right to do anything he wanted, anything he wished. The brothers were completely at Joseph's mercy. They could have said again, as they said before, but governor, we're honest people. We have family back at home. You can ask them how good, how good we are as fathers and husbands and brothers. We're not spies. We're good people. They could have listed all their accomplishments, how they help provide for their family, how they help support everyone here. They could have listed all their accolades, all their little badges of honor and pride. But no, you see, when it's all said and done, when you're actually before the judge, you're at the mercy of the judge. And these brothers, for the first time in their lives, were at the mercy of Joseph. Folks, don't you see that that is exactly our situation before God today? We are at his mercy, but we live our lives as if it's expected. I expect your mercy. I expect your goodness. I expect your, your hand of love. Like we feel it's even owed to us. It's owed to us because, you know what? I'm not a horrible person. Because I'm not that bad. We don't go around hurting people, those around us. No, no, we work hard. We strive to do our best. But what we fail to realize is that we are all at the mercy of God because it is against God that we have sinned against. We've ignored God all day. Some of us, we've ignored God all week. Some of us ignored God all month. And there are even some of us here who have ignored God all year. And we disobey him constantly, continually. By taking all the praises for ourselves, we discredit him. We even try to destroy him. Do you know that? By putting to God's status the idolatries of our lives, the ambitions of our lives. We live as if God doesn't exist. And so as a result, there is no longer the fear of God in our lives. There's no longer the fear of God in our lives. There is fear of being found out. There's fear of tarnishing our image and our reputation. There's fear of losing money. There is fear of losing our family. But there is no fear of God because we fail to see that we are at the mercy of God. The only reason, I'll tell you, I can stand right here before you preaching the words of God as a blemished and as a fallen and as a sinful man without being struck down by God is simply by the mercy of God. You know that? The only reason you came here with your family in one piece is by the mercy of God. The only reason that you have a job that you can pay your bills or that you can put food on the table is by the mercy of God. The only reason you have legs that can walk, arms that can reach, eyes that can see, ears that can hear, a mind that can think, a tongue that can speak, and a heart that beats is only by the mercy of God. Your very next breath comes from God saying, I allow it to happen. I allow it and that one, and the next one, and the one after that. 
We must be terrified at the holiness of God. We need to be awestruck at the righteousness of God, and we have to shudder at the hands of God because God is not some God we can stuff into our little politically correct box or our comfortable theology. No, you see, He is a God of wrath against sin. We think that hell is led by some pitchforked, red-faced Satan. That hell is somehow devoid of God. No, that is completely false. Do you know that hell is filled with the presence of God? Did you know that? It is the presence of his holy wrath. Is there the fear of God in your life today, folks? Is there? If so, your understanding of God should comfort you, but it should also terrify you that we are at his mercy. We are at his mercy. Look, I can preach every Sunday until the day I die, and I can counsel people into radical discipleship. I can lead people to Christ. I can do all these things that would make me seem holier and put together. But all my spiritual maneuvering, all my dutiful, faithful work, all my preconceived ideas of self-protection is worthless before him. Because, get this, without Christ, without Christ, even my perfection is blemished, and I offend him. Without Christ, even my amazing righteous works is but filthy rags and it offends him. God is not one who has to give me an account. No, I am the one who has to give him an account. And in that, there is no negotiation, there is no settlement, there is no plea bargain. There is only God as the holy righteous judge and there is the rest of us at his mercy. The brothers of Joseph were at the mercy of the governor. They were in a terrible situation. But what our text says next gives us hope, and that leads us to our second and final point. God's grace is beautiful. God's grace is beautiful. Now, do you know why I like Braveheart the movie so much? I think a lot of people like it too. If you don't like it, there's something weird with you. It's a great movie. It's a fantastic story. Yes, it has an amazing plot line. Uh, character development and just a wonderful story and all that stuff, but and uh, <clears throat> it's great. I don't know how factual it is, to be honest. I really don't. So the whole liberating of Scotch people from the tyrannical rule of the English king. But here's the thing. What, one of the reasons why I really like that movie, and I don't know if, how many of you guys were grossed out, but happily grossed out, if that's such a thing, by the whole William Wallace killing the English sheriff. That was so sweet. Disgusting, yes, sure. But it was sweet revenge. The English sheriff, he killed his wife, the one that they married in secrecy. And in so revenge, William Wallace goes up and he exacts revenge on the sheriff by doing the same thing that he, the sheriff had done to his wife. So there's something absolutely sweet about revenge. To be able to put someone and get someone back who ruined your entire life. The chance to put them away for good, the opportunity to make them feel what you felt, experience the pain that you experienced. Joseph's revenge on his brothers would seem like sweet poetic justice, wouldn't it? But what we learn instead from this passage is that as sweet as revenge is, that there's actually something far sweeter than that, far sweeter than revenge, and that is grace. Grace is is infinitely sweeter. Can you say that with me? Grace is infinitely sweeter. 
Now, here's the thing. It's hard to extend grace. It is. It's easier to exact revenge, right? It is. Even my children, Junior might, out of stubbornness, hit Ada. What will Ada do? If I'm not looking, she'll knock him over the head or something like that. It's just easier. It's so easy that a three-year-old can do that to a one-year-old, right? But only grace is sweet because grace is the sweetness of God's love towards people like you and me who have sinned against him each and every day. So yes, revenge and getting back at people is sweet, but grace is sweeter. And it doesn't come easy to us because honestly, it's not the first, th- it's not the first thought that comes up when we're wronged. And I don't know about you, but if I had, like Joseph, 22 years to stew and mull over the crime against me, I'd probably think of some crazy diabolical plan for whatever, and whatever love or affection or peace I may have had would only be eclipsed by my complete bitterness at my brothers to get back at them. You see, grace, nothing about grace is natural to us. Revenge is. Love, love is not natural to us either. Hate is. Humility, do you know that? Humbleness is not natural to us. Pride is. So how can we experience grace? Well, we need to understand that grace is the work of God. It's not something that you just muster up within yourself and say, you know what, I'm ready now to extend grace. No, no, no. Grace is the work of God, and it also has to be nurtured by him. And so that's exactly what God did in Joseph. You see, God, at this moment, taught Joseph about his grace. And so what are these lessons? Here's the first one. First is this. We can hear Joseph explain the principle of God's grace. Let me read verses 5 to 8 real quick, okay? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to there as well. Verses 5 through 8. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father, like a manager, to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. So what's Joseph talking about here? He is reflecting on the profound truth that there is this relationship between God's sovereign act and the sinful actions of his creatures. Now here's the thing. Was Joseph able to, what Joseph was able to do was look at his life in a different lens. If Joseph only saw his troubles and his problems and his circumstances with his vantage point, then he would become what? What do you think? If your life was just junk after junk after junk and hardship and pain and suffering after suffering and you only saw it from your lens, only from your vantage point, only from your perspective, how would you respond? What would be the consequence? What would be the result of your thinking after that? You'd be embittered, wouldn't you? You'd be cynical. You would hate life. You'd be mean. You'd, be, you'd have just a heart of heaviness. But Joseph, despite all those things that happened, to his, happened in his life, he had to learn to see things from God's perspective. Say God's perspective. And so it's from God's perspective. He realized that, you know what, there are no surprises. And he realizes this. He realized something very interesting about people, that people and all their wickedness and all their foolishness were being what they were naturally inclined to be, wicked and foolish. Did you know that people are naturally wicked and foolish? Did you know that you and I are naturally wicked and foolish? You know, when my dog barks, do I go, what are you doing? 
How can you do that? How can that be? Dogs bark. Why? Because dogs bark. When Junior started crying, do I start getting upset and start blogging on Facebook? This is a horrible day. My babies cry because babies cry. Why do we get so upset when we see the calamities of people, the foolishness, the wickedness of people? Yes, we see the injustice, and it hurts us too. But when we see the pain of broken relationships and things like that, it shouldn't surprise us either. Joseph was able to see with the lens of God at these people, at his brothers. But in all that, Joseph was able to see that God, he had a plan that he wanted to pass. And regardless of how he felt about God's plan, because after all, you know what was interesting about God's plan? It wasn't really nice to Joseph, was it? Joseph, according to God's plan, was sold and bought as a slave. He was thrown into prison, forgotten, probably hungry and beaten and tortured because, again, he was a slave, a prisoner. But in all that, he knew God's plan had a purpose regardless of how he felt about it and, and, what's, and how he suffered because of it. In your current situation and the problems that you are currently facing right now, can you say, God, 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 let me look at this from your vantage point? Let me see it in your perspective. Let me see it with your lens and not just from my own narrow view. So Joseph, he lays out pretty clearly. Verse 5, God sent me ahead to save lives. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant. Verse 8, God sent me here. It wasn't because of you. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. Verse 9, God made me Lord of all Egypt. You see, we need to change our theology because if your understanding of life and of God comes from you and your emotions and your feelings, then the case for the brothers would be hopeless. They would all be condemned to death. Joseph would have just suffered and died as well, but it's clear that this passage, that God is sovereign, meaning that there is no limit to God's rule, that God is never helpless, that God is never frustrated, God is never at loss, that God does what he does and he's just in what he does. So therefore, God, he led Joseph through a painful but purpose-driven 22 years of training for a greater purpose that goes beyond Joseph's comfort and peace. Can you say to yourself right now, God is training me. I see nothing but darkness before me. I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know why they did this to me. I don't know why I'm undergoing all these things. But I know because I trust that God has a plan and he is training me for something bigger than this. So not only did Joseph understand the principle of grace, but he also shows what he also knows and shows us what extending grace looks like. And that's another lesson we get here. Grace comes from God, not us. So for example, Joseph recognized his brothers before they recognized him. He was, do you know that he was loving them? And he was working on something. He was working on reconciliation. Even though these brothers were still fearing Joseph, remember it wasn't Joseph to them, it was the feared governor, that they were fearing him and they were distrusting him. Even though the brothers knew that this governor was harsh and was unreasonable, Joseph, behind all that, was working things out for their sake. And that's really how it is with God too. Because repeatedly in Scripture, the Word tells us that we are not seeking after God. In fact, we want to do the opposite. We want to get away from him, but it's God who takes the initiative. God is the one who chooses to love us. God is the one who's asking us and telling us and, and changing us to turn away from the world and turn way back to him instead of condemning us 
Instead of blaming us, instead of kicking us out, he says, let me love you. I'm extending my love to you. But notice this. Notice that God's grace isn't about sweeping sin under the rug either. Remember the brothers that were terrified when Joseph identified himself to them? They were speechless. But Joseph continued, and then he got right to the point, verse 4. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So it wasn't just this. Hey, guys, it's me, Joseph. Period. It was, hey, guys, it's me, Joseph. Remember your own flesh and blood whom you betrayed by selling me into slavery and doing all these reprehensible, horrible things and sinning against me and sinning against our tribe and sinning against God and doing all these horrible things. Remember me, I'm that Joseph. Joseph, he wasn't going to pretend that nothing happened. He didn't pretend that he didn't know about their sin. No, he doesn't ignore the sin. You know what he does? He doesn't ignore it. He forgives it. You get that? He doesn't ignore their sin. He forgives their sin. We keep thinking that we just need to deal with the guilt, the consequences of sin, and that sin is just something that we all have to live with. No, this passage teaches us something pretty awesome, that God's grace is greater. It exceeds our sins. That God's grace will not only forgive you, but get this. God's grace will also empower you to defeat sin and temptation. Hallelujah. How do you know if you've been reconciled that there's been this official change of spiritual status in your life? Notice verses 14 15. We see Joseph throwing his arms around his brothers. This is what God does in his mercy and grace. You see, when he revealed his identity, when Joseph forgave them, when Joseph called them out on their sins, what did the brothers do? Did the brothers start climbing up the stairs and start hugging and kissing, like, oh, Joseph, we love you, and, we, we, and all this stuff? No, it was Joseph who said, come to me, right? It was Joseph who went to them and hugged them and kissed them and wept over them. What was restored at that moment? Fellowship was restored. Fellowship was restored. And notice that in this act of reconciliation, God, he gives us everything we need, meaning Joseph doesn't just say, okay, brothers, everything's cool now. We're good. Just go home. No, he says, take these clothes. Here, take this money. Go get my father. Bring him back here so he can live in plenty. And so because of Joseph, Pharaoh, he holds nothing back, and he gives them the best of everything. Take all these things. Take these carts and leave your belongings behind because guess what? You're going to get better things. And folks, that's exactly what God does with us too. God not only forgives you, but he restores you. You get that? He not only forgives you, but he restores us. But then he gives us everything we need to live for him in this world. And he treats us like he treats his own son, Jesus. The Bible says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? I end with this. What is God saying to us all today? What is he saying to you right now? We need to humble ourselves, fear God, yes. But here's the thing. We can't keep living as if everything is okay. You get that? 
We can't keep living as if everything is okay. Look, you may have money. You may have a little fun on the weekends. You may think life is moving on up like the Jeffersons, and everything's good, right? Relationally good, financially good, professionally good, and all that stuff is good. But spiritually, let me tell you, spiritually, everything is not okay. It is not okay. Stop thinking you're doing great just because you've done a little bit here and you've done a little bit there and you've done a little bit there. You see, when we stand before God, we stand before him helpless. We stand before him hopeless as the brothers, just as the brothers stood before Joseph. They got nothing. They had nothing to say. They could do nothing else. They were helpless. They were at the mercy of Joseph. And folks, unless you have Christ and unless you have submitted completely to him, there's nothing that you have that could ever hold your case. We are at the mercy of God, and yet in the reality of our sins, it must lead us into the deep waters of his grace. Let the reality and the power and the, and the humiliation and the guilt and the shame of your sin, don't let that turn you away from God. Make it turn you back to God so that you can fall into the deep waters of his grace. Because that's what sin does, and that's what Satan is trying to do. He's, ma- he's trying to make you feel so uncomfortable with the sins of your life that you say, God, I am not worthy of forgiveness. I can't do this because, God, you've forgiven me, what, a thousand times already over the same sin. I can't dare go back to you. I'm humiliated. I'm going to completely separate myself from you forever and ever, and I'm going to live the worldly life that I think I probably am destined to live. And Satan the whole time is rubbing his hands saying, yes, that's exactly why. Because Satan, you see, He doesn't care about if you sin or not. He cares about the effects of that sin. He cares about that sin saying, you see? You see how mad God is at you? You see how he does? How dare you even try to go back to him? But you know what what the grace of God does? The grace of God says this. You sinned. You sinned again. Come back again. You sinned. You sinned again come back again and again and again and again because the grace of God exceeds our sins. Go before him into the deep waters of his grace. Let it it renew you. Let it splash over you. Fall back into it. Fall forward into it. Fall deeply into his grace and be washed anew. That is his promise. When you cling to him, is when you receive his grace. And folks, when you do that, and you don't run away from him, but you run to him, you'll be changed forever. You'll be changed forever. Amen? Let's pray. So as we pray, as we think about what we've just heard from the Lord, I'll tell you, this is something I deal with too. This is something every believer deals with. That sometimes we take God a little bit too lightly. That we don't understand the effects and the consequences of our sins. Maybe we just pass it off as saying this is just life. But understand that our sins are not just little hiccups along the way. That it isn't a direct assault and attack upon the holiness of God. Because you see, it was our sins that nailed Christ on the cross It was our sins that led God to sacrifice his son on the cross. Do not minimize, and we cannot minimize, and we dare not minimize the sacrifice of Jesus.
But secondly, is there shame that's holding you back? Is there a desire for comfort and ease that's holding you back? Are you pursuing a risk-free spiritual life? Whatever issue that you have right now in your life, whether it's sin issues, lay it before him. And maybe it's hard for you to do that because you have yet to really experience his grace. Then be honest and say, God, I am at your mercy. I don't know what else to do, Lord. I want more of you, but I also want the world. I want to chase after your heart, but I also want to chase after mine. I want to be effective and just a powerful, radical disciple of Jesus and make you known, but Lord, I am too comfortable. Pray that. Surrender it. God is not out to get you. He's out to get you to him. He wants to bring you back. And so that's why he lavishes us with his grace. And it is his kindness that leads to repentance. So let's take a moment, just pray, okay?